Welcome to the SCOTUS Blog Podcast. I'm Adam Schlossman. I'm here today with the founding dean of UC Irvine Law School and constitutional scholar Erwin Chemerinsky to discuss his book, The Conservative Assault on the Constitution. Dean Chemerinsky, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for doing this. To begin, can you briefly describe the book and why you decided to write it? Since Richard Nixon ran for president in 1968, conservatives have sought to change basic constitutional principles. To a very large extent, they succeeded. It's easy to overlook that. The decisions come down one at a time. Not every case does the conservative position prevail. Roe versus Wade hasn't been overruled. But I believe that if one looks at the overall sweep of constitutional law, there's been a tremendous change in its conservative direction. I decided that I wanted to write a book about this for a general audience. I didn't want to just write for other law professors or even for law students and judges, but I wanted to write a popular press book about how much constitutional law has changed and how much we've lost in terms of liberty and equality. Simply, what do you believe to be wrong about the conservative view of the Constitution? One thing that's wrong is that the conservative view purports that it's based on a neutral methodology, that the justices aren't imposing their own values, that they're just, in John Roberts' words, umpires. And I think it's so important to show that that's false. That conservative justices, like liberal justices, inevitably have discretion, and how the discretion is exercised is a result of the values of the justices. Antonin Scalia, for example, finds in the Constitution no right to abortion, a prohibition of affirmative action, permission for the government to give unlimited aid to religious schools, the allowance of prayer in public schools. I think you can better understand Antolin Scalia's philosophy by reading the 2008 Republican platform than you can by reading the Federalist Papers. The reality is conservatives, like liberals, are going to make value choices. It's just conservatives have been trying to pretend they're doing something else. So one thing I want to do in the book is show that there is no neutral methodology. It's all about the value choices that have to be made. But the second thing that's wrong with the conservative approach is the choices that they've made. And I go through six areas in the book. Education, presidential power, separation of church and state, the rights of criminal defendants, individual liberties, and access to the courts, and try to show in each of these areas the conservative direction is undesirable. Do you see the conservative wing of the court as enablers of a larger political movement, architects of such a movement, or playing some of the role in what you describe as the conservative assault on the Constitution? I think it's important to see what the conservatives have just done the Supreme Court is part of a larger conservative ideology. And I try to show this in the book. Richard Nixon, when he ran for president in 1968, strongly opposed busing and other efforts at desegregation of schools. And his attitude and philosophy then came to be that, that the justices he appointed to the Supreme Court put forward in constitutional decisions. Richard Nixon saw and brought about a great expansion of unchecked presidential power that, Richard, that Ronald Reagan extended and then George W. Bush carried to fruition. The Nixon approach to rights of criminal defendants then came to be adopted by the justice he put there, and similarly by other Republican-appointed justices into the future. So I think it's important to situate what the Supreme Court has done in what I call the conservative law of the Constitution as part of a larger conservative ideology. 
more broadly, do you think that the court's shift is symptomatic of a larger societal shift? I think that overall society is quite moderate. Sometimes they're more moderate conservative, sometimes more moderate liberal. But I think this is overall a centrist country. I think that the justices that Republican presidents have appointed are often significantly more conservative than the American public. So I would say here that Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas, more recently John Roberts and Samuel Alito, are substantially further to the right than where society is. And I think that's part of why we've had what I call the conservative assault on the Constitution. Do you see this, this similar rightward word shift occurring in the lower courts as well? Yes, the less dramatically because of historical accidents. Between 1968 and 2009, Republicans appointed 12 justices to the Supreme Court. Democrats appointed two justices to the Supreme Court. And some of this is, as I said, historical accidents. Jimmy Carter got no picks for the Supreme Court during his four years in office. Richard Nixon got four picks in his first two years of office. You don't have that same kind of imbalance when it comes to the lower federal courts. There's thus been more of an evenness in most circuits between Republicans and Democrats. It's tended to shift more back and forth than it has with regard to the United States Supreme Court. Obviously, the Bush appointees for most of the circuits were quite conservative. Um, the Clinton and Obama were more centrist or liberal. But So what you see at the Supreme Court level isn't the same as what you see at the District Court or the Court of Appeals level, just because of the number of vacancies that have been filled. Why is it that uh, you think Presidents Clinton and Obama have chosen more centrist judges? Was that merely a political calculation about confirmability, or was it a deeper commitment to centrist constitutional understanding? I think it's a great question. I don't have an easy answer to it. I think that, say, the George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan picks to the Supreme Court are overall significantly more conservative than the Bill Clinton, Barack Obama picks are liberal. So I think that the conservatives have picked much more from the right, and the Democrats have picked much more from the center. Now, I don't want to overstate. If you take, for example, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, some of Clinton's picks are liberal, but most of Clinton's picks are moderate, and some are even conservative. But if you look at Bush's picks for the Ninth Circuit, they're almost without exception conservative. So why is that? It may be that the Republican base cares much more about judicial nominations than the Democratic base does, so that when it comes to picking judges, the Republican presidents use them much more to please the base than Democratic presidents do. It may also be something about the control of the Senate. For six of Bill Clinton's eight years in office, it was a Republican-controlled Senate. That then limits what the president can do. Contrast it with George W. Bush. For six of his eight years, there was a Republican Senate, which let him basically get the judges that he wanted confirmed. I also think in the Senate there's a difference. When Democrats were filibustering President Bush's nominees, the Republicans threatened the nuclear option and were able to get through three of Bush's most conservative picks, Brown, Pryor, and Owen, and basically end the filibuster. Republicans used the filibuster to an unprecedented extent during the first two years of the Obama presidency, but you didn't hear the Democrats threatening the nuclear option. I think you put all of this together, and what you have is 
when the Republicans are in the White House, there are much more conservative judges picked than there are liberal judges picked when the Democrats are in the White House. How has the court shift to the right redefined the term liberal justice? And can you conceive of a time in the foreseeable future when a genuine liberal, as you understand the term, might be confirmed for the court? It's interesting, as I've spoken about my book, many have said, well, how do you define liberal and conservative? And I said, here I think all you need to do is compare the Republican and the Democratic platforms from 2008 or 2004 you get a sense of what's liberal and conservative. I say, look at the major issues of the day. Conservatives oppose abortion rights, but they'll favor abortion rights. Conservatives oppose affirmative action. Liberals favor affirmative action. Conservatives oppose gun control and favor gun rights. Liberals favor gun control and oppose gun rights. We could go on a whole set of issues like this, and I think by grouping them together, we can come up with an operational definition of what's liberal and what's conservative. I don't think it's changed much over the last several decades. I think since Roe versus Wade, conservatives have opposed abortion and liberals have favored abortion rights. I would say for decades it's been the case that conservatives opposed affirmative action and liberals have favored affirmative action. And we can go on with the other issues in that way. So I don't think any of us really have doubts as to how we define liberal and conservative. The difference between Ruth Bader Ginsburg, say, and Antonin Scalia is the difference between liberal and conservative. What role do you think that liberal organizations like the ACLU and GLAAD have played in encouraging the development of a, a conservative legal revolution? I think the conservative legal revolution is a product of so many different things. I think that it's the product of a conservative ideology that has focused a great deal on constitutional issues. I think it started with Richard Nixon and increased with Ronald Reagan. I think it's the product of conservative intellectual thought, whether it's things like the Heritage Foundation or the Federalist Society. I think it's also the product of the rise of the religious right and their importance in the conservative movement. I think, therefore, when you talk about things like the ACLU or GLAD, I think that they're incidental in the development of conservative ideology. I don't think conservative ideology would be all that much different, even if there weren't an ACLU, or even if there wasn't GLAD. What role do you think Justice Kennedy has played in the conservatives' redefinition of constitutional meaning? I think Justice Kennedy plays such a complicated role. Justice Kennedy is now the swing justice on the Supreme Court, as everyone knows. I really believe it is the Anthony Kennedy Court. I mean, he's voted more 5-4 decisions in the majority than any other justice over the last five years. Justice Kennedy is significantly more conservative than Justice O'Connor on a number of issues. For example, he's more conservative with regard to campaign finance, as we saw last year when Citizens United overruled McConnell. He's significantly more conservative with regard to affirmative action. Justice O'Connor had written the majority opinion in Grutter versus Bollinger, the last major case supporting affirmative action. Justice Kennedy dissented. Justice Kennedy has never voted to support any affirmative action program in his 23 years on the Supreme Court. Justice Kennedy is significantly more conservative with regard to separation of church and state. And I can go on with other examples as well. Now, there are places where Justice Kennedy has not been with the conservatives. He refused to be the fifth vote to overrule Roe versus Wade. He wrote the majority opinion in Lawrence versus Texas. So they met a Romer versus Evans expanding gay rights. 
He's been with the majority and written some key opinions with regard to the Eighth Amendment, such as his cruel and unusual punishment to impose the death penalty for crimes committed by juveniles or to impose a life sentence without parole for non-homicide crimes committed by juveniles. So I think where Justice Kennedy is key in this so-called conservative revolution is in the areas in which he's willing to be the fifth vote, now with Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, for a conservative result. But he's also the break in limiting how far the conservative revolution has gone because of the places where he's not willing to join the conservatives, like the ones I mentioned, overruling Roe or death penalty cases or gay rights. How far do you think the conservative drift is likely to go? I mean, will Justice Thomas get his way ultimately and undo such things as separation of church and state? I think it all depends on who fills which vacancies on the Supreme Court. Imagine that Kerry or Gore had replaced Rehnquist and O'Connor rather than President Bush replacing Rehnquist and O'Connor. The outcome of countless decisions in just the last five years would have been different. Imagine that John McCain had replaced Souter and Stevens. Well, the outcome of countless cases in the years ahead would be different. So I think it's all about when do vacancies occur in which presidents get to fill them. If, for example, Justice Ginsburg is replaced by a conservative president with conservative justice, well, the conservative revolution is going to go a lot further. On the other hand, to say Justice Scalia is replaced by a Democratic president with far more liberal justice, that would then determine the outcome in countless cases before the court. As to your specific question of separation of church and state, I don't think that Justice Thomas's position that the establishment clause doesn't apply to state and local governments is going to get a majority any time in the foreseeable future. There's only one justice since 1947 who's taken the position that the Establishment Clause doesn't apply to state and local governments, that's Clarence Thomas. But I do think that the conservative position on the Establishment Clause in a more general way is going to prevail, in that during the Rehnquist years, Rehnquist, Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas said that the Establishment Clause applies only if the government literally establishes a church or coerces religious participation. And I think that probably has five votes on the current court. How do you think Justice Roberts, Scalia, or any of the conservative justices might respond to the major themes and arguments you make in your book? I think descriptively they would agree with much of what I've said, but normatively they would vehemently disagree. So I don't think they would say I mischaracterize what the Supreme Court has done with regard to education, or that I mischaracterize what the Supreme Court has done with regard to the rights of criminal defendants, was that I mischaracterize what the court has done with regard to access to the courts. I think what they would say is that these are all desirable changes. In some instances, based on how the Constitution is interpreted, with regard to access to the courts, how they've interpreted the rules of civil procedure. So I think the disagreement is not over what's happened, but over whether it's good or bad. And obviously on that, we have sharply different views. A basic conservative criticism of legal, of, I'm sorry, of liberal constitutionalism is that it is anti-democratic to allow unelected judges to impose their personal policy preferences on the nation. Do you feel as if there is any built-in constraint against such subjectivity in your view of the judicial role? There's so much in that question. First, there is something 
that is anti-majoritarian about allowing unelected judges to strike down what popular elected officials do. Often when I teach constitutional law, I've had my students for the first class read a copy of the United States Constitution and a copy of the Stalin-era Soviet Constitution. My students are always surprised to see that the Stalin-era Soviet Constitution had a far more elaborate statement of rights than the U.S. Constitution. I also have my students read a description of life in the gulags, said by Solzhenitsyn. And the question I ask is, how could it be that a country with such an elaborate statement of rights could have such abuses? The answer I want them to see is that what makes the Constitution meaningful to a large extent is that it's enforced, and we need judicial review. Now, the fact that it's anti-majoritarian doesn't make it anti-democratic, because I don't believe it's correct to define American democracy as majority rule. Majority rule is part of it, but I think our constitutional values are also part of it. Second, I don't accept the premise that judges are just imposing what your question refers to as personal preferences. I think the Constitution inevitably gives to justices and judges tremendous discretion. What does reasonable mean with regard to a search or an arrest under the Fourth Amendment? What's cruel and unusual punishment? What's equal protection require? In terms of most cases involving individual liberties or equality, what's a legitimate government interest if it's rational basis review? Or what's an important government interest if it's intermediate scrutiny? Or what's a compelling government interest if it's strict scrutiny? All of these require that the justices make choices. And inevitably, those choices are going to be influenced by the justices' own ideology. And what we ask the judges to do and the justices to do is to look at the text and to look at the framers' intent and to look at history and to look at tradition and to look at precedent and look at contemporary social needs and decide the meaning. That, to me, isn't the same as preferences, though it does come down to a lot depends on the ideology of the judges. Are there checks? Well, in the sense of outer boundary constraints, of course there are. Presidents over time get to replace justices and thus bring the court more into alignment with where society is at a particular moment in time. There have been four instances in which Supreme Court decisions have been overruled by constitutional amendment. There's, at least in theory, the possibility of jurisdiction stripping. We've gone. Now, none of those are direct constraints on what courts can do, but I think the very nature of wanting to have judicial review is that except for outer boundary constraints, we say we're better off as a society having these unelected judges give modern meaning to our most precious values. To the extent you can, please talk about what you believe President Obama's view of the Constitution to be. And do you feel that view is reflected in his two choices for the Supreme Court thus far, uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan? I'm not sure what President Obama's view of the Constitution is. I'll give you an example. President Obama says that he believes don't ask, don't tell should be repealed, and yet when the federal district court declared it unconstitutional, even though he didn't have to, he brought an appeal. When there was a lawsuit that was brought by victims of torture, the Obama administration urged dismissal based on the state secrets doctrine. On the other hand, President Obama has expressed a commitment to checks and balance and separation of powers, quite different from that articulated by his predecessor. So I haven't seen, and probably we'd never see from a president, an overall constitutional philosophy that makes it easy to answer the question. Now, I think for both Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, confirmability was a key part of why they were chosen. Both were confirmed by the Senate without 
any doubt as to what was going to happen. President Obama didn't have to expend any political capital to get either of them confirmed. I think that Sonia Sotomayor will turn out to be a liberal justice, if last year is a predictor. I think it's harder to know where Elena Kagan is going to be on the ideological spectrum. But what President Obama picked was two superbly qualified women who get confirmed without a major fight. And I think that's exactly what he was looking for. Do you think that the court has granted the executive too much authority? And what do you think the, the liberal wing of the court could or should do? The main area in which executive power has come to the Supreme Court in the last decade is with regard to detentions and civil liberties in the context of the war on terror. Here the court's record has been mixed. Um, in Bumadien, the Supreme Court said that Congress acted unconstitutionally suspending the writ of habeas corpus, and that limited executive power. On the other hand, in Hamdi, the Supreme Court said that the president can detain American citizens as enemy combatants, but they have to be given due process. Many of the things that the executive has done haven't directly been reviewed by the court. I was troubled, for example, that the Supreme Court denied review when there was a challenge to the constitutionality of the massive electronic eavesdropping of the terrorist surveillance program. I was troubled that the Supreme Court refused to review claims of individuals who had been tortured. There's a Fourth Circuit case, the Mastery case, where the Bush administration had a torture victim's claim dismissed by Spence State Secrets, and the Supreme Court denied review. So I wish the Supreme Court had been more active in taking some of the cases that were presented to it that involved issues of executive power. Can you please talk a bit about what you describe in your book as your, quote, vision to reclaim the Constitution? I think that if one looks at the sweep of American history, there's been tremendous progress with regard to the advancement of equality and the protection of rights. Think of how we've gone from a slave society with the abhorrent practice of slavery written to the fabric of the Constitution into one that went to segregation being approved by the law and approved by the Supreme Court, the one that slowly over time has gradually moved, too slowly but moved, towards racial equality. Think about gender, where we've got society that began with women as chattels and property of their husbands, to one where finally in 1920 women got the right to vote, to one where we're moving towards greater gender equality. I think of the movement with regard to equality for gays and lesbians over the last decade. I can point to rights that have expanded. I think the last few decades have been a time of retrenchment. I believe that at some point historians will look back at these last few decades and see them as regressive, but see them as temporary, that we will move forward. And what I'm trying to say in the last chapter is we need to think about how we go forward. Some of it is to expose the myth that conservatives have a neutral methodology and to show that conservative justice like Scalia and Thomas are just imposing their own conservative values in their decisions. But I think also some of it is what we've got to do is develop what's a progressive vision of the Constitution and not simply be responding to the conservative approach. Finally, with this book, are you trying to reach conservatives or do you see it more as a clarion call to liberals? I hope that the book will get a wide audience. I have no illusion that people who are conservative will agree with what I said, but I hope some of what I write about will trouble them. I certainly hope that liberals will read it and maybe be better informed as they think about, speak about the Constitution. 
But I also hope that there's a whole group of people in the middle who may not be familiar with some of the things that I talk about in this book, and that this book can then play a role in educating them. The book is also, in part, a memoir. Each chapter begins with the story of a case that I handled. So for one chapter, it actually starts with the story of my dad's death. And I think this is, in part, my chance to try to tell what I believe has happened in the Constitution in the last 30 years. And as I say, I hope it will reach a wide audience. The book is The Conservative Assault on the Constitution. Thank you so much, Dean Chemerinsky, for your time. Uh, thank you for doing this.